0: Everybody. It's um, Martin Kearnan here and I'm joined today by Brett Mitchell. Hello Brett. G'day Martin. Nice to see you again. You too. And our special guest today is uh, Dr. Emma Burnett. Now Emma is the head of campus at the Fatima College of Health Sciences in Al Ain, in Uni- United Arab, Arab Emirates. I'll say that again. United Arab-, Arab... Oh God, I'm running these teeth in for somebody else. United Arab Emirates. Um, and we're going to be talking about a couple of papers that she and a group of colleagues from the UK have produced recently. And unfortunately, Jude Robinson wasn't available to join us. Um, but we're going to be talking about designing an optimal infection prevention service. So thanks very much for being able to join us, Emma. Loved it to see you. My pleasure. It's great to see you both. Too. Can you talk about how this piece of work came about to start with before we then start talking about the papers that you produced?
1: Um, I was looking back on dates actually last night um, when I was preparing for this. Um, and I can't believe that it all started back in August in 2016. Um, at that time, I was coordinator of the R&D Committee for the Infection Prevention Society. And we were looking at um, doing some collaborate um, research. So we had um, kind of a blue sky meeting day in London on the 25th of august and i think at that time there was about 20 infection prevention and control practitioners from the ips joined us and it was just a, a general meeting to say you know what 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 the priorities were in research what kind of things were people um finding problematic or challenging or you know what what could we do so we developed some great there was great conversations and we developed some great com- uh, concepts and then we joined up again in December in 2016. And from that meeting, two research groups were formed. Um, one about this, because there was a lot of discussion about priorities of infection prevention control teams, about, you know, what were they mandated to do? What resources did they have? How many infection prevention control practitioners should be in one team? And there was lots of discussions around that. So, we formed those that had an interest in that. We formed that. And I think the second group was, um, Jackie Prieto, Jerry Wilson, Heather Loveday, Andrea Denton and some um, other colleagues, um, joined together to look at urinary capital management in the community. So really that's how it, it started. Um, and through discussions with the infection prevention control teams, you know, we, we established that there were many similarities in terms of what teams did. But there were also quite a lot of differences and a lot of different priorities which which you would expect anyway so we decided at that point right let's just look at you know throughout the uk and ireland look at you know what makes a good team you know, I, you know there are differences based on local needs and issues within healthcare associated infections but let's just look at broadly conceptually what makes a good infection prevention control team to try and help teams then to formulate their teams, to move forward, to develop their programs for recruitment and things. So that's really when it started.
2: I think I remember a Harrogate, uh, an IPS conference. Is that that might have been one of the first times I heard that you were embarking on this? Was that right? Because that, that would have would have been a few years ago. Are these things, and that's not you know these things. I know take a long time. But and you talk about a long journey. But is that about when it started? Which was probably what five years ago.
1: Yeah, that would have been just before it started then, yep, and yeah, and that was up in our early conversations. Like, it seems a lifetime ago, yet not that long ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. Infection control programmes are often developed by infection control teams, which could be based on local priorities, but actually... Is there potential for there to be an element of the bias of the focus of the the people within that team you know, rather than necessarily the local priority? Or, you know, because some people lean towards the environment. And Brett gave a nice talk at a last week. And people's number one priority for action over the next year, from a list that he put up on the screen, was actually improving environmental hygiene rather than dealing with healthcare associated pneumonia and catheter associated infections which were the bottom of all the priorities, and yet they're the most prevalent healthcare-associated infections generally.
2: And I would say that on that list um, was about, if you had, I think I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, if you had a clean slate and a slight increase in budget, w- w- would your priority be to um, to redesign your team? Um, and I thought that actually might, uh, I can't exact words, but it was along those lines anyway. Um, but I thought that might have actually, there was a few people that voted for that. I thought that might have been higher, um, particularly post-COVID, to to think about what, what, what is it we actually
0: need in our team. Interesting. So, Emma, you, you'd sent out a questionnaire to, to kick off with, didn't you? Is that right?
1: That's right. The first It was in four phases. So the first thing was um, a survey questionnaire, and we sent that out to 400. Um, well, we got 400 responses from IPC leaders and managers. And we just wanted to know from that questionnaire, you know, what do the teams look like? What do they do? What's the core function of the teams? Um, what What's desirable, or what What they're mandated to do, and what they're doing that they're not sure that they should still continue to do. And we also wanted to know what What do they see as a success of their team? How is it measured? Is it for a uh, reduction of healthcare associated infections? And I know recently, um, in one of your podcasts, Martin, you spoke about a paper from um, Clifford about looking at staffing levels and the impact that that had on infection prevention control teams, so uh, healthcare-associated infections, rather. And so we wanted to get a sense of, you know, what were they using, using to measure whether they were a successful team or otherwise. A lot of it wasn't surprising. You know, successes was reduced or reduction of healthcare-associated infection. It was compliance with infection prevention control practices. It was staffing. There was a lot of broad stuff like staff engagement. And it's like, you know, how do you measure that? How do you know if that's a success? How, how can you measure staff engagement? So it was these kind of things that we wanted to tease out. Barriers to a, a successful infection prevention control team on programme were things like poor staffing levels, lack of resources, poor leadership, things that you would imagine. And then that led us on to the second phase.
2: So, what did that tell you? The first stage, the first phase. What were the key, the key things there that you took to the second stage?
1: What we mainly wanted to focus on were what is the makeup of the team, the skill mix. You know, what kind of expertise do they have in the team, and how they use that expertise. Because you, you said just previously to this, you know. Infection prevention control teams often, you know, how do they know what to focus on? Does it depend on what they like to do, what their expertise, what they have an interest in? Or is it what they're mandated to do? Because, you know, the range of activity within a team is absolutely huge. And then that would then lead on to the, the huddle discussion where we could tease these issues out a little bit more and get the qualitative elements. Um, and, and dig a little bit deeper to find out, you know, what they were doing around these areas.
0: Well, I thought what was quite interesting. Is in the questionnaire you asked what core activities were, and you, you, I think you must have provided a big list. And uh, virtually everybody thought everything was a core activity, apart from research and um, and what was the what was the alarm? there was another one that they didn't think was a core activity. But research isn't a core activity, and I I, I wonder actually if you. Spoke to managers of of organisations, not infection prevention managers, whether they would see within their own organisation as research as a priority or getting on with the day job would be a priority. And it it would be interesting to see what, say, chief execs or operations managers or heads of m- medicine or nursing thought of what we should be doing, because we we've, we talk to ourselves and we we have a pretty good idea what is the core the set of core components, even though it's extremely wide and you can't do all of them. Uh, do you think there will be any differences between what our organisations expect of infection control teams and what we expect to provide to them and where their priorities might be?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we didn't do that for this study, but that is an element that I think is really important to establish. And I think, you know, to do some work around that, you're probably going to find, it's again, isn't it, competing priorities, Mm. what a priority is for, for, for one team could be a completely different priority for another team. And the research element in this study was a thread right through each of the four phases. And participants told us that they want to be involved in more research, whether that's leading on research or participating in research. But it was very much seen as something that wasn't part of the day job. And because the day job took up all of their time, research just got put down on the bottom of the list. But I think if you do speak to other senior teams, we might see a very different response. I mean, we talk infection prevention control about being you know, data-driven, research-driven, evidence-based practice. So, you know, research is a, is a key element to that.
2: That sort of concept of um, involvement in so many different things is really consistent with um, other work from the US, Australia, where it just seems that ICPs I've got this really broad remit. There's just so many things from education, surveillance, quality improvements and staff health, you know, and you look at the individual elements of all those as well, you know, from advice and, and policy development and day-to-day management of, of clinical scenarios. It's a It's a really diverse role. Were there any real standouts that really shone through as a consistent or or the most common thing that people said was really fundamental to IPC?
1: The fundamental issues were, um, not surprisingly, education. And that was talked a lot, you know, education of healthcare staff. Many people felt that they want to do more education, but they didn't have the staff to do it effectively. Um, healthcare professionals are so busy anyway, it, more busy, you know, than than they've ever been before. So releasing people to attend education um, is virtually impossible. You know, they'll they'll organise educational workshops and things, and maybe only have one or two staff because people can't get released. So it's um, a lot of talk was about. How can they move forward and deliver education effectively in a healthcare environment that is getting busier and busier and busier? And they, you know, they talked about looking at new and innovative ways of delivering education. So that was one thing that was very much consistent throughout the study, and about engagement with frontline staff and that leadership element also um was a significant issue in terms of developing the team the other thing that came out was the support from senior management you can do as much as you can do with the resources you have and if you don't have that leadership and that support from senior management it's very difficult
2: Mm. so phase two what did that look like for you? Huh? So,
1: phase two was Yvonne's, Um she led on that phase two, so that was around the um, policy document analysis um, and again, you know, with that, there was a lot of variety in terms of guidelines from, you know, between England, Scotland, um, Wales and Ireland um, and and we, we saw that, didn't we, over the, the course of the pandemic, you know, we spoke to infection principal teams and guidance and policies were changing by the day, given our new, you know, new knowledge of um, COVID-19. And I think that's one of the things, um, certainly from the teams I've spoken to, that frustrated them the most. And it caused so many challenges for them that every day there was new guidance, but there was no consistency throughout the guidance. You know, so we know infection prevention control teams, they, you know, they're a fairly small, um, group of people across, across the board and that, you know, for the yeah, um, infection prevention society, they talk to each other, they meet, they network, etc, They like to share knowledge, but with the inconsistencies of policies, it was really, really difficult for them to, um, to keep moving forward in an effective way. So that was one of the major things that, that Yvonne found from the policy document analysis. And I know that there's work ongoing to look at trying to get a, a better synergy of approach in. In policy documentation, um, because that's a big issue. So that was that was the second phase.
0: Okay. So phase three, how did that go?
1: Phase three, yep. Yeah. Then we we moved on to huddles, which was kind of a modified um, focus group discussions. Um, and we had five huddles. I think we included about fifty three participants. So we took various questions that were taken from the survey questionnaire and the policy document analysis. Um, And these were done, I think we had two online because we were still in lockdown at that point. But then as we came out lockdown, they were done face to face. So Jude um, facilitated many of these discussions at key IPS meetings. So she was able to get uh, a really good diverse group of people at these meetings. And they were given a set of questions about you know successes of the infection prevention control team or barriers to its success and generated some some really good qualitative data about these successes you know about these barriers um and what they were doing to um to overcome them and and what they wanted to change in their team and what they wanted to start doing
2: so the big question is: What were the key findings from that? What were the yeah? What were the take homes?
1: So, in terms of of the huddles, actually, very similar um, discussions came out of the huddles in terms of what infection prevention control teams wanted more of. They wanted more leadership. They wanted more support from senior management and more guidance in terms we. We spoke about earlier on, you know about what the priorities are for infection prevention control teams. you know they they their priorities, but in terms of the wider organization, you know the requests and the demands from them change quite frequently. So it's about more of that collaborative working, the engagement with the senior team to find out right, okay, what are the expectations, what are they mandated to do, what are they expected to do? and to improve that communication amongst the team and to provide them with the support and the leadership so you know if they if they're asked to do something have they got the support Are they valued as a team? Is the communication there? Have they got the resources that they need to be able to carry out the job? So, you know, that was an important element. The other thing that came up in the discussions as well that was really important throughout the huddles was about a proper procurement service. Yes, they're expected to carry out all these activities and and to provide these outcomes. But actually, did they have the resources? Did they have um, everything that they needed to do to be able to do the job? There was no one single priority. There were lots of things were interlinked. Um, successes that they felt off the team in terms of the head discussions were about good leadership. So to have strong leadership, to be able to communicate, to engage with the team, to make sure that things that needed to be done were implemented. Standardisation of policies and guidelines, and um, were talked about a lot. Guidelines changed so frequently, um, and having that communicated in an effective way so that you know when they do change and when they needed to go and we can communicate with with clinical staff that um, they had the tools and the resources to do that. But to be able to share knowledge with their colleagues in other organisations in other countries as well, that was um, really important. And to have um, a, a good learning and knowledge exchange between college uh, between poly. Budget restrictions, it was a, a top priority in, in discussions, but many infection prevention control teams didn't have the autonomy, didn't have the authority to manage their own budget requirements. They were managed elsewhere in the team. So when there were business planning, succession planning, because they didn't have that autonomy with their budget, then it was really difficult to have kind of a, a seamless process there. So uh, many needed to um, have more autonomy over budget and to be able to plan their own workforce. If they had developed a programme, have their priorities set in place, then, then they needed to be able to look at their own workforce and determine what they needed um, to be able to deliver and, and provide their the thing,
0: the thing is, Emma, as we showed right at the beginning in your first questionnaire, we all want to do everything. And we see everything as a priority. And that's where the tension arises, isn't it? Because the organization won't see everything as a priority, even though we think it is. So we've either got to get better at arguing that we have to do everything on this list, or we have to get better at prioritizing and actually accepting, do you know what, we're not going to do that. Even though I know it's a priority, I'm not going to do that. And I think if I went to an organisational senior manager, like a chief exec, I would say to him, what do you want me to do? And I think his first thing would be to say is to meet regulatory requirements to keep my organisation running. So if you have a regulator who's going to come in and there are some core standards you have to do, that's what you really have to concentrate on. And maybe we'd be better at arguing for resource if we were to base our request for a resource on something that meets the need of the regulator. Rather than just necessarily something we think this is a you know we have to do this and that, that's a it's it's making the case isn't it though I don't think we're brilliant at that because who got trained in business planning I'm certainly not an expert in that as I'm not an expert in many other things and trying to make a case and I, we discussed this I think Brett when we talked about staffing you know if you went to your organisation and said okay here's a list of the things we think we should be doing and that's going to take that many whole time equivalents so therefore that's going to cost you that much and that's going to cost you that much where do you want me to not do the work and turn, the, turn it back on them? The other interesting
2: thing, you know, this piece of work, Emma, is the, the, the piece that um, Yvonne led, which is to Martin's point, I guess, about all these different guidelines and requirements and different policy documents that are out there from different um, government organisations, regulators, accreditation bodies, uh, and so on and so on. And even just mapping that out, even if you took Martin, if you took your point to the nth degree, it's still a big piece of work to go. Well, actually, these are all things we've we've got to do because you know Yvonne's work was quite detailed and and diverse and and described that huge amount of and sometimes contradictory um, pieces of advice, saying one thing, do this, and the other group saying do that. So I don't I don't disagree, Martin, but it's but it's a comp- still a complex thing. That's why I like the approach mm. you took, Emma, about. Um, looking at um, individual groups then looking at the the policy-related stuff and then coming back and going, uh, what are the priorities? So with all that, what's your gut feeling about what the key areas of consensus are about um, priorities and barriers? If you you were to sort of nail it in a couple that was reasonably consistent, what would you say?
1: I think... I th- yeah, <laughs> it it is really it, it it's is hard, isn't it? It's quite hard because priorities <laughs> will differ depending on your organisation, depending on your service delivery, mm. depending on what's going on. You know what your healthcare, so- what your infection rates are like, what your staffing levels are like. So priorities will change. Priorities are different, but you know everybody's ultimate priority is to reduce healthcare associated infections and improve enhanced infection prevention control practice I really do think that we have a you know we've we've gone through a pandemic you know infection prevention control teams I've had countless discussions with teams and you know it's nearly brought me to tears that I wasn't a practice a practicing clinician over the pandemic but listening to you know the hours, the, the, the exhaustion that that teams have gone through over the pandemic. Now they're coming out of the pandemic, well, kind of coming out of the pandemic during the winter season, you know, and they're treading treacle. And it can be easy to say that you can't see the wood from the trees now. It's just, what do they focus on? You know, for the last two years, it's been, it's been the pandemic. There's things that, they would have you know needed to focus on or they would have liked to focus on but but they haven't been able to now they're in the winter season so i think the priorities mm. now is it's a good time for infection prevention control teams to, to kind of step back and reset and to say you know what are our priorities what what haven't we looked at that we really need to look at what are the what, what are the policies what's the guidance say what what are we mandated to do and Step back, and I think you're right, Martin, in terms of they can't do everything. They they literally, they physically, that you know, teams are exhausted, they can't do everything. So, it's about looking at their priorities. Um, and the,
2: the other thing I was going to say, what, what I'm hearing as well is that you know, one side, one box doesn't fit all. Um, and and so, yeah, going back to your point, Martin, that um, if we're expecting teams to, to be able to locally develop priorities. We need to give them the skills and the resources to, to be able to facilitate that. And, um, whether that be through specific training or time, project managers to come in, external evaluations, whatever it means, whatever, there's lots of, lots of solutions to that, but, uh, none of those probably actually happen, but, um, you know, that's that, that opportunity to step back and go, okay, um, we, we don't want to be dictated to about what we have to do necessarily. There'd be regulatory requirements, but but the opportunity to step back and go, what are our priorities locally, and have the someone who can help guide them if there isn't that expertise or time or capacity or capability locally to to to, to step through that process. Um,
0: I, I was just wondering, really, if 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 the, the locals, if you go, if you ask the local managers or you know or the matrons or whoever what their priorities might be you might get a bit more engagement because then they would be working on their priority if you could twist things round, mm. rather than us telling them they've got a problem then coming to you with a problem but i mean i, I i've read the paper i was looking for barriers and it's mostly around financial controls, uh, constraints and administrative control whether those financial constraints stop the education of the ipc team or stop you developing people i think that was interesting what, what i thought was also interesting is that there was no mention of reluctance of staff to adopt new practices or to listen to infection prevention and control teams as a barrier whereas if i went back to when i started back in 1990 nobody would have wanted to listen to me because all i was doing was going around giving them a problem all the time so actually reluctance to change was an issue whereas i think people get now that we're more of a fire brigade than a police service and i i, I thought that was a nice thing that's come out of that and i'm i'm wondering if the pandemic has shaped people's views of infection prevention as a facilitating and assisting service rather than somebody's going around saying that's the wrong thing that's the wrong thing i wondered if was, if you got any sense of that coming out of this
1: yeah i think i think you're absolutely right and we did have some of these discussions in the the huddles um and uh, same as you martin i mean um, i joined infection prevention control about a 100 years ago now and 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 that's you know that's what we did we walked around and pointed the finger and say you know don't do this don't <laughs> do that and we were like police and you know, we used to walk into departments and people used to sca and we never got that engagement and the funny thing was when you know when there was a problem or an outbreak or anything like that that's when you developed your relationship because you were there to help to support staff and that's when you really were able to work and engage with staff and change that kind of mindset of who we were and we were there to help you and I think you know um, that from the discussions the pandemic has absolutely done that and you know it has brought teams together it has You know, I think hopefully with, we've moved away from infection prevention control teams being the police and we're there to support and help you, you know, overcome problems, reduce infection prevention control, uh, um, healthcare associated infection and improve practice. So, yeah, there was, there was discussions about that and, you know, teams felt a little bit more valued by other healthcare professionals in terms of their, their expertise in in their own right. Um, so I, that that certainly came out of discussions. I mean, you still uh, still read the odd tweet about infection prevention control teams um, being so awful because they won't let people put up Christmas trees and things. I read a tweet just <laughs> last last week there. Oh, so, uh, it's um, the annual like tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. i saw a big thread about nurses not getting to drink at nursing stations and things like that because of infection preventing control so you're all you're, you know you're always going to to get um little snippets of that but i think you know i think teams have come a long long way to break down those barriers and that's certainly what what came out of of the discussion
0: okay phase four i was going to ask about yeah i was going to ask about phase four
1: So, yeah, Facebook was really interesting. And it's a shame Jude's not here because um, she was very much the lead on this and she did a marvellous job. So she worked with John Otter and Leslie Price on the nominal group technique, which is kind of similar to Adelphi, but very different. So this was looking at consensus. We had 69 statements of what a successful infection prevention control team looked like. Um, and 14, 45 statements of what their key priorities are. So they were then ranked, and that's when we came up with the, the top five of what the key priorities were and the top five of what the successes of an infection prevention control team were.
2: And drum roll, what were the uh, what were the other top uh, priorities there?
1: And from that, the top priorities were, not surprising, preventing healthcare-associated infections to pervert. Uh, um, preserve patient safety. So that was the ultimate overarching priority. The next one was engagement of frontline staff and embedding key infection prevention and control principles into practice. Education of IPC team then was the third one and career pathways and developing staff that way. Embedding evidence-based practice, so linking that with research. And the fifth one was about effective outbreak management and providing resources to the infection prevention and control team. So that was your five key elements of um, priorities of an infection prevention control team. And the top five enablers and um, enablers for success were appropriate staff resources, and we've touched upon that today. Mm. Appropriate Sorry, just
2: on that is, that, is that resources in terms of both numbers of people as well as the skill set, or do you think that's just a, a numbers game on that one?
1: This is a really interesting discussion. I know Brett that you've you've done quite a bit of work on this. Um, and in, in initial discussion, there was talk of you know back in the day we said what one. I uh, infection prevention control practitioner for what say 150 beds, and you know a lot of people still ask that: how many people should you have in a team? You know, in comparison to the acute beds or whatever beds that you have. But we didn't touch upon that. We looked more about skill mix. We looked more about the the expertise of the infection prevention control team, about what mm. you know some of the characteristics. And actually, um, David Cunningham is doing quite a lot of work around infection prevention um, workforce. And they're looking at actually specific characteristics and personalities of infection prevention and control staff. So I'm really keen to see what comes out of that study because we didn't go into um, that kind of that detail as much. But I think that is crucial for infection prevention control teams but we didn't look at numbers. And what's your thoughts? I know you've had some podcasts um, about this and both of you have discussed this and have different opinions. So what's your thoughts about numbers?
2: Numbers, I agree. Numbers are almost futile because it depends on so many factors. A, what your priorities are, what your requirements are, what your skill mix is and what the service delivery is. And, you know, in Australia, a few years ago, we had grand ideas to start off and try and come up with that a number and we, we started with a whole bunch of work very similar to, to yourself as you know Emma, and surveyed hospitals across Australia and found out what the number was and we know what the number is on average but that doesn't mean that that's right or wrong and and the ultimate goal of that piece of work was we were aiming to try and um come up with a number and we decided halfway through this is going to be impossible um, to do for all those reasons you've talked about throughout this podcast, so um, very in a similar position. So I think that that's why I just asked the term, what, what do we mean by resources? Because people assume it's always a number, and it doesn't necessarily mean a number.
0: Yeah, I struggle with the number. I've got to be honest. It you know it's 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 the the number is the right number you need to fulfil the objectives. Okay, and if you set a certain number of objectives, then that's what you need and and sometimes that will go up, and sometimes that will go down and seconding people in or bringing people in or out I think is sometimes a good idea and if you If you've got an a, an objective say that needs a major change in practice throughout the organization, maybe for the year when you're trying to embed that, you need to up the number in the team and bring in somebody like an, you know a, a behavior specialist for that period, to for that project. And then maybe they don't need to be there after that until you do another piece of work. To, to be honest, I think every organisation should consider employing a behaviour specialist anyway, because so much about healthcare delivery is about managing human behaviour anyway, and I'm not sure too many organisations do that. But I think the number is what you need to actually fulfil the objectives, and that needs to be the organization's objective. So I I don't go with the X per Y beds, because things change so dramatically in healthcare and you know if turnover is huge uh, you know it, it doesn't work x per y beds because it doesn't look at what your activity is what your level of need is within your organization
2: now like all podcasts emma you do you realize that we do get sidetracked on these things so you started with the no- <laughs> number one i think um, <laughs> yeah. enabler, and we interrupted you so um please go on
1: <laughs> so um, and yeah i i completely agree about numbers and teams because you can have a team of 10 people and half of them are completely ineffective and, you know, you can have a team of three people who are hugely effective and have better outcomes and a much better team. So yes, um, I agree with that. So then from that um, nominal group, we had our um, top five priorities and our top five successes. And from that we wanted, you know, we we, we almost kind of came to the, the end of the study and it was like, well, what now you know and most teams will look at this and say well you know that's not a surprise we we know about that we do know this and we agree with it but what do we do with it so we spoke a long time about right we've got all this data we've got the priorities and successes what now so that's when we came up with the idea right let's let's develop a conceptual framework let's bring all of this data together because what we wanted was Ultimately, to help infection prevention control teams develop the team, write business cases, help them with recruitment, help them with education, all the rest of it. So how can we do that? So that's how we came up with this final conceptual framework. And we mapped that against the WHO core competencies. We came up with these four pillars. What do we need in an IPC team? So, for example, we've got strong leadership, multidisciplinary, appropriate skill mix a competent team so all of these things need to be in place to have a good effective infection prevention control team so again what does that mean you know we've said one size doesn't fit all local teams you know more national teams bigger teams smaller teams what can they now do with that so this is that kind of an overarching conceptual framework but what we feel after writing this paper, uh, that there's still some more work to be done. So what we've decided to do is there's some layers behind this conceptual framework. So we've got the overall concept. Of how now can infection prevention control teams use this in a, a more kind of pragmatic sense? So, for instance, take IPC teams. We've got strong leadership, multidisciplinary, appropriate skill mix succession planning what can we now provide teams to help them develop so looking at evidence how will you go about it how can you go about persuading senior management that you need an extra two members of staff with this skill mix how can you go about developing the leadership within your team how can you go about providing an educated and competent team so what courses are there you know Do you want to go down the route of credential inference, for example, or do you want to do more formal education and providing resources, providing the teams with resources to do that? So there's almost another element behind this conceptual framework. Um, And I don't mean just, you know, throwing guidance. Here's all the guidance. Here's the policies, reading it. Because people, to be honest, are are sick of reading guidance. They're sick of reading policies. And when I was going through (laughs) your podcast, Um, last week you know this is this is a great resource to you know you've got podcasts about leadership you've got podcasts about communication I listened to John Otters about the way that we communicate within IPC and there's absolutely tons of things in there that would be really valuable for teams to listen to and consider when they're developing their teams and when they're providing professional development for instance we don't educate people on how to communicate we just go ahead and do it but it's a science you know there's lots of elements so behind this conceptual framework we can provide links to the podcast or links to key people that have a real passion and a real interest in this topic to to go and speak to so rather than just saying here's the evidence here's a paper on this you know do this but I think we need to think of more creative ways to then develop this conceptual framework to help for instance, look at the, the last pillar, it's all about influence and it's about encouraging a positive culture, engaging in the wider healthcare team. And it's okay for us to write this in a conceptual framework, but how? How can teams do this? And I think that's the next element that we've got to do to to work with teams to say, right, okay, here's some example, have a look at this podcast, get some tips and some tricks from here and which will help you develop your team. So more work to be done. Um, to, to add more layers to this conceptual framework to make it achievable, manageable and to make it uh, something that infection prevention teams can, can work with. Well, like all
2: good oh, thanks pieces. Thanks for all the plugs, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for all the plugs. All those, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, as I say, like all like all good pieces of research, they always end up with yes. more work to be done. So, uh, <laughs> But um, Emma, thank you very much for the uh, great overview of a really large piece of work and we've be able to step through that, you know, I know quite quickly relative to the amount of work that's gone in and the amount of publications, we'll put the publications on our um, on our website so that there's links off to it, so people can delve into some of these things in a bit more detail and I'm sure people are really looking forward to this, um, this next phase, whatever that's going to be, phase um, 4 plus 1 um, seven, uh, <laughs> Phase 17 is going to be the killer Phase <laughs> 17 will be the killer one <laughs> because uh, you know that, that'll be really important. I think in these resources and the and the, the practical nature of implementing yeah. some of these things. So thanks very much for your work, Erin. Thanks for joining it's us. It's been podcast.
1: my pleasure, and it's been you know it's been great to be involved um, and to lead with Jude on this um, really important piece of work. And I would like to recognise Infection Prevention Society and all its members for everything that they they've put into this. Um, it's you know it's it's been greatly appreciated and we couldn't have done anything any of this without them so and thanks for having me
2: great no worries at all yes big team we do acknowledge all those and all those that contributed to to that piece of work for yourself and others as well so thanks Emma, and thanks martin as well for joining us um always a pleasure as indeed and um i think martin have we got one more before our finale or is this our finale next
0: week no, finale next week. We've got to record yes. the Christmas special on Monday, so that I'm looking forward to that one. Yes, good. Day. All right. Well, uh,
2: thanks very much, Emma. Cheers, Martin, and see you everyone soon.